The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as His belt. Yet the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. God, we gather together this morning as your people to make a proclamation to recognize, God, that you have established everything that we see here in this world. God, we recognize that you are the one who has created even us. God, and we recognize that we are, we are yours. God, we also recognize that despite our sin, God, you looked down upon us and loved us and sent your son to die for us so that we might be restored to that right relationship that we so desperately need with our creator. This morning as we gather together, may our proclamation be one that exclaims the excellencies of our God because of who he is, and because of what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. Oh God, you have made us. Who are we that you are mindful of us? God, may we be mindful this morning of the reality of what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.
Amen. Kiddos, kindergarten through third grade can make their way downstairs. Mark and Blaze, I'll ask you guys to come up here. And while everyone's shuffling around, I'm going to read for you all from Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. It's a really important text for the life of the church. Let me read this. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11 through verse 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which with, with which it is equipped. When each part is working together properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We have the privilege this morning, um, as a young congregation, we have the privilege to do this, uh, to install essentially this morning two men as elders here at Buffalo City Church. These are shepherds and teachers, and Paul writes this to, to us in Ephesians chapter 4, that Christ gives to the local church shepherds and teachers to watch over the flock, to care for them. Oftentimes when we think of elders and church leadership, we sometimes just think of a board of decision makers or a group of men who have been elected to serve a particular purpose or to make decisions about carpet color or paint color or whatever it is. But Paul says, again, that elders are given to the local church to equip the saints for work of ministry. And again, this requires a mindset shift for us, for many of us in this room, that it is not the elders and the pastors and the shepherds and the overseers that are the one who are given to do the ministry, but they're the ones who are given to equip for the work of the ministry. So if you're here this morning and you identify yourself with Buffalo City Church, you are to be equipped for the work of ministry by these men who we're going to be installing this morning. Again, that's a little bit different. Uh, we need to be, though, equipped for the work of ministry. And as our congregation grows, God raises up particular men to do that equipping through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, through actively praying for the flock, through living exemplary lives of character, outlined in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and Titus 1, 5 through 9. And then through living the mission to make disciples, as we have said, that our mission here is in response to the Great Commission here at Buffalo City Church. And this is all to be done in humble response to what God has done for these men and for you and I in Christ Jesus by sending His Son to die so that we might spend eternity in right relationship with, with our God. And so this isn't a ceremony, but this is a celebration this morning. This is a celebration that God has given Buffalo City Church two additional men to lead in this way. To proclaim, to explain, to apply God's word in the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead the congregation into the proclamation of God's word with our mouths and with our lives to the 
explanation and to the application of the gospel of Jesus Christ every day. So our members a few weeks ago voted uh, in a family meeting to unanimously install these two men as elders of Buffalo City Church. So what needs to happen then this morning is for them to come before you and to look at you in the eye and to make a particular set of vows to the congregation here. Um, and so, and then in a moment, also our members will stand and, and make vows as well. But I'm going to start with Mark and Blaze. I want you to absorb these, to listen to the vows that they're about to make. Um, listen to them very closely and understand what these men are saying. Remember, we talked a few weeks ago in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 that we shouldn't be hasty to make a vow. Um, we need to go into even vow making um, with the right mindset and the, the right heart. So Mark and Blaze, I'm going to read these vows, and then would you please respond uh, appropriately? There's 10 of these. I'll read them. You reaffirm your faith this morning in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old Testament and New Testaments to be the word of God, totally trustworthy, fully inspired by the Holy Spirit to the supreme, final, and only infallible standard of faith and practice? Do you sincerely believe the stated values, the mission and vision, the covenant of this church, that they contain the truth taught in Scripture? Do you promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the statements in the stated values, the mission and vision and the covenant, you will make of your own initiative known to the pastor and the other elders the change which has taken place in your views since your assumption of this vow? Do you subscribe to the government and discipline of Buffalo City Church? Do you promise to submit to your fellow elders in the Lord? Have you been prompted, as far as you know in your own heart, to accept the office of elder from the love of God and a sincere desire to promote his glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you promise to be devoted to and faithful in promoting the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise to you on that account? Will you be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all your duties as elder, and will you strive by the grace of God to live according to the gospel in all of life? and to walk in an exemplary manner before this congregation. Are you now willing to take personal responsibility in the life of this congregation and as an elder to oversee the ministry and resources of the church and to devote yourself to prayer, the ministry of the word, and the shepherding of God's flock, relying upon the grace of God in such a way that Buffalo City Church and the entire church of Jesus Christ will be blessed? Okay, members, this is for you. Will you please stand? Members of Buffalo City Church, stand up. I'm going to read these vows, and I would ask that you answer with, I, I do. Do you, the members of Buffalo City Church, acknowledge and publicly receive these men as elders and as a gift of Christ to this church? Do you commit to love them and pray for them in their ministry? and work together with them 
humbly and cheerfully, that by the grace of God you may accomplish the mission of the church, supporting them in their leadership to which the Lord has called them, to the glory and honor of God. Good. Let me pray for these men. Lord God, we thank you this morning and we come before you as those who tremble in your presence. As those who recognize and realize that you have created us for right relationship with you. God, we thank you for the local church. God, we thank you for the reality that you have called us your children, that you have adopted us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And as your local church, God, I pray that we would see the organization, the structure, the ways that you have set it up in order to function in a healthy manner. God, I pray for each of these men, for Mark and for Blaze, the encouragement they have been to me and the encouragement they have been to many in this room as Buffalo City Church in its infancy has been shaped and is growing. God, would you cause us as a congregation to live into the mission that you have given to us, a mission to make disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. May these men proclaim the word of God with their mouths as often as they are able, with their lives all of the time. God, may they explain the word of God adequately and accurately to the people of Buffalo City Church and to the surrounding community. God, and may they apply the truth of the gospel to all of their own lives and to the lives of this fellowship. God, may we grow. God, may these men equip the saints for the work of ministry so that we may be presented mature as a congregation. May we love your word, God. May we grow in it. God, may we be led into love for it and growth in it through these men. God, may our hearts be united as a congregation. May their ministry be one that unites. God, may they seek you fervently in prayer. God, may they bring matters of the local church before you in fervent prayer. May they diligently and vigilantly lead their wives and their children insofar as they are able in ways that glorify you and honor you as their God. God, we thank you. We thank you for all of the good gifts that you have given to us as a church. God, and we thank you for these men. God, we pray that these vows that they have taken this morning would rest firmly on their consciences, God, and that they would execute them with expediency in the way that you have designed. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things this morning. Amen. Thank you, guys. Let's go to the God's Word together then. Let's go to Ecclesiastes. This is where we've been. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. I'm going to start reading in verse 10. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, now would be a good time to grab one. There's hardback copies behind the door. 
And also there's uh, softback copies on the table back there if you don't have a copy of God's Word and so desire to, to have one. I'm going to read uh, Ecclesiastes beginning, chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. And we're going to read through chapter 7, verse 14 this morning. This text marks the, the second half of, the beginning of the second half of the book of Ecclesiastes and a bit of a tonal shift for us this morning. Let me read this. We'll pray and then we'll dive in. The preacher writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to the heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. As for the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise to madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges itself in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Lord God, this text is hard. God, I pray that you'd be with us as we explore it. God, may we go away from this place transformed. God, we thank you for the truth that we find in your word. May we diligently seek to live in accordance to it. Amen. We are a congregation that has seen significant growth through the birthing process. Um, There are a lot of people who have had babies in our midst. Uh, And if you know someone who has had a baby, maybe it's a coworker, a neighbor, or a, a friend, or a family member, you may or may not have received a birth announcement. A birth announcement, if you're unaware, you've been living under a rock, has usually a picture of the baby with uh, uh, usually from like the the fresh 48 session or wrapped nicely in a basket or in a blanket. Um, And it includes details 
about the baby. First name, middle name, date and time of birth, weight, length. The funny thing about a birth announcement is when you receive the birth announcement, it contains most of the details of the baby's life right then and there. There's not a whole lot of other information about this child yet. Mothers may tell their birth stories to their kids and their family members or on a blog, but the baby has yet to willfully accomplish anything. The baby is wholly dependent on God, typically through his or her parents. And what is unknown about the baby is what comes next. What comes next? As a mother, if you hold your newborn baby, you may ask yourself these questions. When will the baby's first steps come? Or when will the baby's first words come? What about the first trip to the ER? What about the first real friendship or heartbreak? What about marriage or kids or career? What about a first real health scare? What about a car accident? What comes after the birth announcement? And that's what we need to get our heads around as we begin to process this text in Ecclesiastes 6 and 7. Because just as surely as the birth will be announced on a piece of cardstock, so the death of this individual will be announced on an obituary. And while almost all of the information about a baby comes on that piece of cardstock, a whole lot more information is contained and left off of an obituary. It will share a whole lot more, not just simple details and numbers about you, but who you were as a person. Your measurements as a baby are seen on a birth announcement, but your measure as a person is seen on the obituary. And so when we get to our text this morning, we see at the beginning of chapter 7, when the preacher says something to the extent of it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, or in in verse 1, the day of death is better than the day of birth, why would he be saying that? And the reality is we have to go back up the page a little bit to chapter 6, verse 12, where he asks two questions for us, and these almost operate as our guide for all of what's said throughout the course of the first 14 verses in chapter 7. Look at verse 12 of chapter 6 with me. The preacher says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life for which he passes like a shadow? Who knows what is good for man? And then the second question, who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Now the preacher answers both of those questions for us. The answer is to the who question is God, but the answer to the underlying question, what will be after him, what will be after man, and Who knows, or what is good for man, the preacher wants to unpack both of those things for us. So like I said earlier, this text begins, marks the beginning of the second half of the book of Ecclesiastes. 
So, so far, we've seen the preacher explore a whole lot of different ideas and concepts, things that he thinks will ultimately or we seek to find satisfaction in, and at the end of each of these sections, there are seven of them total in the first six-ish chapters, he ends each with the phrase, all is vanity and striving after wind. He explores money and possessions and wisdom and power and relationships, you name it. Solomon has gone after all of these things and has found them lacking. Why are they vanity? Why are they striving after the wind? Because pursuit of these things can't deal with Solomon's primary problem that death is lurking around the corner. None of these things can prevent death from coming. None of these things can prevent the fact that you will have an obituary at the end of your life. And so as we get into the second half of the book, beginning in chapter 6, verse 10, the preacher asks those critical questions. If those things can't satisfy, if none of those things under the sun can offer ultimate satisfaction for us, then what? Then who knows what is good for man? And who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? These questions are critical. And if we discover what is good, according to that first question, if we discover what is good, we can discover then that which is best. And if we have a broken view of goodness, it will lead us into stumbling into a dead end upon dead end. So the preacher says, if we have a good understanding of what goodness is, then our steps in our lives will be directed correctly, but if we have a broken view of what goodness is, it will leave us stumbling into dead dead end upon dead end. And so he's going to help us out. He's going to answer, begin answering some of these questions. So he's going to explore essentially two things in this text and then draw a conclusion. The two things that he's going to explore are what is good, and then he's going to explore what is wisdom, and use that as a bridge to draw a conclusion at the end of of this text. So that's going to guide our time together. The preacher's exploration of what is good then. Look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. This is where we're at exploring what is good. You'll notice here in this section of text, there are seven statements and explanations marked by a comparative, the word better. So if you look here, you're going to see the word better pop up seven times. Verse 1, a good name is better than a precious ointment. And then in verse 1 also, the day of death is better than the day of birth. In verse 2, it is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughing. Verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Verse 8, it is better, uh, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And verse 8, patience is better than pride. So at first glance, we don't like these statements very much. Except for maybe one in, eight, er, one in seven, the seventh one. Patience is better than pride. Yeah, okay, we can get our heads around that, although most of us don't apply that very well. And then in verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. Yeah, I'd I'd rather have a good name than a precious ointment. But everything in between there is pretty tough. We come upon the preacher 
the first half. It's pretty heavy stuff of this book. Let's lighten up. But the preacher pours it on here, and for good reason. So again, the preacher is asking the question, who knows what is good for man? Okay? So we need to take these better statements. It is good, a good name, the day of death, going to the house of mourning, sorrow, rebuke, endings, and patience are better. This is good. These things are good for man. So we have to ask this question, well, why? Why? Why are these things good? Why do these things help develop our understanding of goodness and thereby lead us into wisdom and to ultimately decipher what is best? Why are these things good? Solomon. I think this is where he's driving us in this text, this statement. An understanding that life under the sun comes with difficulty, adversity, suffering, and oppression, and death leads us to trust in our sovereign God and grow in wisdom. I think this is where he's driving us. An understanding that life under the sun comes with difficulty, adversity, suffering, oppression, and death leads us to trust in our sovereign God and grow in wisdom. Psalm 39.4 reads, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. How many of you prayed that prayer recently? <laughs> Let me know the end of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Knowing the exact time you will die is like a theme in science fiction, literature, film. We see that a lot. And you have, may have even thought, I wonder when I will die. The preacher doesn't have an answer, but he calls us to live in light of the end and understand that the path to the end is like a lot rockier than we would like it to be. And this is wise. It is wise to live in light of the end, and it is wise to recognize that life is not free of difficulty. The irony of all of this, and the preacher gets it, is that when we ignore death and the realities of difficulty and adversity and oppression and trials and suffering, we are actually less happy. That's the irony of this. When we ignore those things and the reality of them in the world that we live in, we are less happy. Especially if it's true, what is good for man? A good name, the day of death, going to the house of mourning, sorrow, rebuke, endings, and patience. When we ignore these things, it is to our detriment. If you want to be happy, you cannot ignore the realities of the world. Because the one who is able to offer us hope in the midst of difficulty, adversity, suffering, and oppression is also then ignored. And this is a great challenge in our time, in 2019. A great challenge in our time. Because we possess a lot of things. And while there's not, a, not anything new under the sun, or like, he sa- like the preacher says in verse 10, whatever has come has already been named, we still possess a lot of things in our culture. Technology, transportation, medication. These things improve our lives drastically compared to previous generations. And so our natural inclination as Human beings is to 
trust in the thing that comes before our eyes most quickly. What can alter this reality of this difficulty and this suffering quickly? I have a headache. I take some Tylenol. I need to go to Fargo. I don't need to pack up the covered wagon and get in the and prepare several meals and hope no one gets dysentery. We just hop in the van and we're in just a little bit over an hour, we're at Costco buying 800 fruit snacks at one time. <laughs> now, these things aren't bad. Like, they're not bad. You shouldn't, like, live in this perpetual state of guilt because we have these things. But they present me and you with opportunities to trust something other than a sovereign God. A sedimentivan and minivans can get in the way of trusting God. And because I trace the progression of the things that the, 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 the way that these things offer relief to me, I am tempted to believe that my life should be free of difficulty, that my life should be free of adversity, that my life should be free of suffering, that my life should be free of oppression. And when difficulty and adversity and suffering and oppression happen, I say, Why are all these bad things happening to me? But the preacher calls them good. Or at least the response to them. These things are good for me. The day of death, going to the house of mourning, sorrow, rebuke, endings, and waiting are good for me. So what is good for you? We tend to slip into this mindset. Not a comfortable life. It's not perfect kids. It's not a perfect job. It's not a lot of free time. It's not a new boat. It's not a roof that doesn't leak. It's not a husband that listens well. It's not a wife that doesn't spend too much money. Not a checkbook that always perfectly balances. What is good for you is that you trust God and that you grow in wisdom. Look at verse 4. Where is... Where's the fool's heart? Where's the fool's heart go in verse 4? To the house of mirth. Mirth is like amusement or laughter that comes as a result of amusement. Why is the fool's heart there? Because he's ignoring the difficulty. Adversity, suffering, and oppression that the world is full of and is probably throwing away most of his understanding. The preacher isn't speaking out against happiness. He's warning against ignorance and voluntary unawareness. Friends, don't ignore the tragedies that are ever-present in our world. Hundreds of thousands of babies are aborted every year in the United States. Mass shootings in our country are daily occurrences. Natural disasters pepper the landscape. The preacher says that it is the fool who fills his head and his heart with amusement and ignores those realities. The fool goes to the heart house of mirth while the world tears itself apart. And it is the fool who fills his head and his heart with amusement while we personally experience difficulty and adversity and suffering and oppression. And if you can... Never, you, can never, you can never expect to be happy or to have joy if you ignore the realities of the world and the realities of life. 
Let me, let me tell you something that I think is logical and is a biblical principle, but that we ignore without fail. Many of us do. Maybe, maybe it's just me. And I think you need to believe this. Difficulty, adversity, suffering, and oppression does not beget joylessness. Or let me say it like this. When things are hard, it doesn't mean that joylessness necessarily follows. When things are hard, it doesn't mean that joylessness follows. And if you're in Christ, you must believe this. Your joy and your happiness is not contingent on comfortable, frictionless life of perfect freedom. What does wisdom say? What does wisdom say? What is the wisdom that the preacher presents us with? What does it say? Difficulty, adversity, suffering, and oppression does not beget joylessness. Why can we believe this? The first half of verse 14. Go there. Look at the first half of verse 14. The preacher says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Now, we're going to come back to this verse in a few moments, but the sense of this verse is this. This is the sense of it. In the day of adversity, know God has made days for prosperity and adversity. And since in the day of prosperity you can be joyful, you now have the ability to be joyful in both. In the day of earthly prosperity, be joyful. That's what he says right at the beginning. First clause. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, what are we to do? Consider. God has made the one as well as the other. And so, therefore, he flattens this out for us and says, Adversity, prosperity, be joyful. You can be joyful when the world seems to be crumbling around you because God made that day just like he made the day where everything seems awesome. So, verse 1 through 9 in chapter 7 attempts to answer this question for us. Who knows what is good for man? What is good for us as the preacher sees it? It is good for us to have an understanding that life under the sun comes with difficulty, adversity, suffering, and oppression, and, that, and death, because, and because this leads us to trust in our sovereign God and to grow in wisdom. And by recognizing what is good, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, the preacher begins exploring then what is wise through the end of our section of text this morning, especially in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. This exploration of wisdom then begins to build the bridge for us into that verse 14. It builds the bridge for us to his conclusion. So, with an understanding of that which is good for us, we are then to grow in wisdom as a result. So essentially there are four things here, beginning in verse 10, that we see that help us to grow and mark the life of those who are growing in godly wisdom. 
Let's look at these. I'm going to just go th- move through these. One in each verse. Verse 10. The preacher says, Say not, Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So what do we claim or what do we glean from this? Wisdom doesn't look backwards. Wisdom doesn't look backwards. We ask, why would the preacher say this? Well, I think, I think if we were to grow in wisdom, we won't look backwards to times of prosperity when we're facing seasons of adversity. That's why he says it. And remember all the way back in chapter 3 when we were talking about times and seasons and all of those things, the beginning of that chapter tells us, the preacher tells us, that there's a time and a season for everything. No doubt you've lost a loved one in your lifetime. It would be foolish to look back at the time when the loved one was alive and to think that that time was better than now. God gave you a season of prosperity with that loved one. And he gave you the season of adversity that comes in the wake of his or her death. I think the preacher is also communicating this, maybe asking us this question. Should we not look to the past and try to replicate things that were good? Should we look to our past or a past time in history and time try to replicate things that were good? As the church, as a local church, we tend to do this a lot. We look back to a time of relative moral uprightness in recent history and suggest that we should go back to that time. The preacher says this is foolishness. Why? Friends, there is growing adversity toward Christians in our culture. Christian men and women are silenced regularly and falsely stereotyped, criticized, and condemned because they are trying to follow Jesus with all of their lives. That is a frequent reality in our culture. What's our response? A foolish response, the preacher says, is to go back to a time and to recover a time in the past where things were seemingly better for Christians and culture. Rather, wisdom realizes that God is sovereign over cultures, including our own, and to rejoice even in the adversity that we face that's growing against Christians in our context. The second thing then, look at verse 11. The first thing, wisdom doesn't look backwards. The second thing that marks the life of those who grow in godly wisdom is stability. Wisdom offers us stability. Look at verse 11. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. What this doesn't mean is that life under the sun is stable. We've already established that in, 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 in Ecclesiastes. In an earthly sense. What it does mean is that we as followers of Jesus have an internal stability and an unshakability. Wisdom says that because we're trusting in something that isn't under the sun. When we trust things that are under the sun, we are shakable. We are uh, unstable. When we trust things that are above the sun, we have an internal stability and an unshakability. The preacher says that wisdom is good with an inheritance. Now, when the Bible talks about inheritance, we talk about land. What is land? What does it look like? The 12 tribes of Israel were apportioned land during the conquest with the exception of the Levites, who were the priests. 
And this was considered their inheritance. So whenever we see the inheritance language come up in the Bible, as good Bible readers, we should look at the understanding of land. Not that we are to have land, or that should be a primary principle for us, but the understanding of what land represented to, the, to ancient Israel. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. His inheritance was coming. It was a spiritual reality and a a future physical one. The inheritance that the preacher is talking about isn't land, but again, it offers the benefits of it, this stability. Having land offers us a source of food, a place of safety. It means something certain in times of adversity. So, those who grow in godly wisdom increase in stability internally, They are not easily shaken by the adversity that comes their way because they know both prosperity and adversity come from the hand of God. So, wisdom doesn't look backwards. Wisdom offers stability. And then thirdly, look at verse 12. Wisdom offers protection. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Here again, the preacher uses an under-the-sun reality, like an inheritance of land, the under-the-sun reality of the role of money to demonstrate the great benefit of growing in wisdom. What he's saying is that money, in an earthly sense, can protect you from ruin. How much more can wisdom, then, protect you from ruin? So, wisdom doesn't look backward. Wisdom offers Stability and protection. And then finally, fourthly, is that wisdom is realistic. Wisdom is realistic. Verse 13 and into 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? The the fool looks at broken things in his or her life and thinks that they can devise a quick fix. If you think about the question in verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? This is a rhetorical question. And we saw a similar question all the way back in chapter 1, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. But now we specifically see the crookedness as attributed to God. And so the answer is no one but God himself. That which God has made crooked, no one can make straight except for God himself. Those who possess godly wisdom realize that their own efforts cannot fix a broken world. We might try legislations and petitions on the internet, but it is only God who can make straight that which has been made crooked and lead us to affirm what we've already explored in verse 14, that God has made both days of prosperity and days of adversity. And so you can have joy in both because God is in control of both. We don't know what the future holds. Try as we might. What we do know is that God is sovereign over all of our days and what he wills comes to pass with no exceptions. And this enables us to acknowledge and address the difficulty, the adversity, the suffering, the oppression that is going on in our lives 
and all around us. The wise are realistic. If it is God who has made this crooked, who can straighten it out? Only God himself. And he does by sending his son Jesus to atone for the sins of his people in order that we might be restored to right relationship with our God. The crookedness comes as a result of the curse. The curse is eradicated by Christ Jesus. So, in conclusion, this text is not an easy one, but in conclusion, let me give you three things that I think that we've learned from the preacher in this text. We've talked about these all already, but I'm going to sum them up. First, an understanding that, the, that life under the sun comes with difficulty, adversity, suffering, and oppression leads us to trust in our sovereign God and grow in wisdom. The second thing then, this means... This means that when things are hard, joylessness does not follow. And the third thing, those who recognize what is truly good grow in wisdom, which is present, unshakable, protected, and realistic. So in light of these things, we have to ask ourselves the question, so what? I'm going to give you two things. So what? The two conclusions that we're going to draw from this text. First, in Christ, any difficulty or adversity, suffering or oppression we experience in this life is temporary. In Christ, any difficulty, adversity, suffering or oppression we experience in this life is temporary. I don't know where you are at this morning, but maybe you're in a place where you're experiencing one of these things dramatically or drastically in this life. This text offers us hope because it pushes us forward to a point where that will end. The second question we saw right as we began in chapter 6, verse 12, who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun is now an answerable question. It was not an answerable question for Solomon. But those who have seen in the word of God that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, this is now an answerable question. 7.14 says in our text this morning, in the day of prosperity be joyful, in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God has made days of prosperity and days of adversity so that we will trust him for our future. We don't know what our future holds under the sun. You don't know what will happen in the next 10 minutes of your life. You may have a decent idea, but you can't really say with ultimate certainty that you do. We don't know what our future holds under the sun, but we do know what comes next. Eternity with God in eternal joy. Here under the sun, there are days of prosperity and days of adversity. In eternity, there will only be days of prosperity. Why? Jesus came to earth, condescended from heaven, and willingly subjected himself to a greater adversity than you and I have ever known a greater difficulty, greater suffering than we could ever bear, the wrath of God poured out on, against sin. And Jesus drank it down to the last drop. Jesus endured all of that adversity and suffering, that difficulty, so that you, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted Jesus, are perfectly sheltered from the wrath of God and welcomed with open arms into eternal prosperity. Not here under the sun, but in eternity. It is 
foolish to believe that you shouldn't experience adversity here in this life. It is foolish to believe that you shouldn't experience anything but prosperity in the life to come. God giving himself to you, perfect relationship, known and know, knowing and known by our God in exchange that is unencumbered by sin and death. You will bathe in the majesty and the beauty, beauty of God forever and you will know nothing of difficulty, adversity, suffering, or oppression because Jesus annihilated those things on the cross. The effects of sin are done because of his sacrificial death there. The inverse to this is that any adversity experienced in this temporary life is only a small taste of the adversity that will be experienced if you reject Christ as God's wrath is poured out into you for all of eternity. Do not be deceived. Do not run to God and fall on his mercy unless you understand that at the cross of Christ all of these things can be yours. Knowing that you do not deserve any of it, although God has freely offered to it, you will spend an eternity separated from God if you do not fall into his arms. Ray Ortland once said, Do you know who ends up in hell? Everyone who sincerely believes that he doesn't deserve to be there. And do not be deceived. Apathy towards Jesus is rejection of of him. If you're here this morning and you don't think sin is all that bad, if you're here this morning and you think that you'll get by at the end of your life because you were nice to people and you worked hard, if you're here this morning and you think everything that you've heard is for someone other than you, may the Holy Spirit show you the desperate need you have for Jesus. Apathy towards Jesus is rejection of Jesus. God's gracious activity on your behalf was to send his son to relieve you of the adversity that you deserved as a result of your sin. Jesus took it on himself and made a way for you. Cry out to God for forgiveness that comes through Jesus. Trust him. He's the only way that adversity will not be an eternal adversity. The crooked will be made straight for those who received the gift of grace in Christ Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Not by your performance, but because of his. The second thing that I think we can take away from this text is is that once we see under the sun that prosperity and adversity both come from God and we trust him and grow in wisdom, we are freed from fearful living and are able to sell out for the gospel. We are freed from fearful living and we are able to sell out for the gospel. This this text actually gives us some radical motivation for moving ahead and points us to some really important New Testament promises. I'll read for you. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. You know this text. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who was at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So if the day of prosperity and the day of adversity both come from God and that God is for us, then there is warrant for the statement who can be against us. You think that God is against you because of your difficulty, because of the adversity, because of the suffering, because of the oppression of your life. Think again, why? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution or famine or nakedness or sword, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything, anything else in all creation, not even death, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You think that your death signals adversity. Think again. Your death will point to Jesus' death that crushed death so that you might live, so that you might prosper for eternity in the presence of God the way that you were intended to. So we can sell out for the gospel. We can live a life that recklessly proclaims the gospel. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family members are careening towards an eternal adversity in the form of the wrath of God. And we tiptoe around gospel conversations because we don't want to make waves. Or get asked the question we don't know how to answer or look foolish. So we soft-pedal everything. We make flimsy commitments. Will, as a church, will we sell out for the gospel? Or will we shrink back in fear and default to our preconceived notions about social club-looking church? Only to show up when convenient and ignoring what makes us uncomfortable. Or will we look at Romans 8 and we will we say, if God is for us, who can be against us? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And then in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. Will we make it our goal that our neighbors will hear the gospel? Will we set aside the fear of bankruptcy or joblessness or even threat of death and proclaim the gospel? It's God's grace that propels us forward out of fear and into a life that is lived in light of eternal prosperity that is promised to us in Christ Jesus. Remember, we started out by thinking about birth announcements and obituaries. Will our obituaries indicate that we think that the life to come is better than the life that we experience under the sun? Will it indicate that we lived lives with only temporary in mind, hedging against difficulty and suffering and oppression and death itself? Or will our obituaries wisely demonstrate that there is joy to be found in prosperity and adversity alike because our sovereign God has made them both? Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word. God, as we go from this place, may we recognize that our prosperity and our adversity come both from you, and because of that reality, may we sell out for the gospel. May our lives be lives that proclaim the truth of who you are to everyone who we see and is in desperate need of it. God, may we not shrink back in fear, but we, may we live boldly, courageously, recognizing that which is good and applying wisdom where we need to and then moving forward in our lives as those who can proclaim with Paul to live as Christ and to die is gain. God, it is a privilege to worship together. As we close, may our hearts be open and our heads be attentive. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
No power in hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from the Father's hand. God, we acknowledge that that's true this morning. You have promised that to us. God, may we go from this place without fear. God, may we proclaim the truth of the gospel. We thank you that we can gather to worship together, and as we go from here, may we be propelled into the world to proclaim the excellencies of you, God, who has called us out of darkness into marvelous light. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. Amen. Well, thank you so much for worshiping with us. I'm going to give you a couple of things this morning. Levi and Brianna, would you make your way up there? Of course, you're all the way in the back, so it's going to take you like five seconds to get up here. So in five seconds, I'm going to say giving baskets are in the back. We don't take an offering during our congregational worship, but there are baskets in the back for you to drop tithes and offerings into. And since you made it up in record time, I'm going to give you this microphone. Levi and Brianna are our hosts for the, uh, the upcoming all-church retreat. And they're going to share a little bit about that event. Yeah, good morning. Uh, so we've been trying to get creative. We put together uh, a great event for you guys. Uh, uh, September 6th and 7th out of Crystal Spring Baptist Camp uh, in Diana. Uh, cost is $10 uh, for adults. Kids are free. Um, join us at, you have to leave. Like, you can't stay overnight. You can come, uh, stick around, and you have to leave. Um, Weekend's going to consist of worship, uh, campfire, games, very creative games coming, and lots more. Uh, today is the last day to sign up. Uh, there's a timesheet in the back. You can put your name, phone, telephone number. Mm-hmm. Contact. Yep. We'll contact you all. Uh, whoever signs up, you can get more details, find out uh, how many people are attending, and that sort of thing. So please come and join us. Join us. We'd love to uh, have you along. Awesome. Thank you. Like he said, today's the last day to sign up for that. So if you'd like more details, sign up back there. Um, otherwise, you can sign up in the weekly email as well. There's a form in there also. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Uh, just a couple other things that I want to make note of. We're doing that library refresh uh, upstairs. So there's books on the table. If you'd like to take any of those, that are free for the taking. Um, you'll notice that the parking situation has changed a little bit in our area recently. That lot over there is currently being paved. Um, that will be available to us on Sunday mornings. I want to make known that once that's done, and I'm assuming it'll be done this week with school starting, make use of that lot to park this, this upcoming Sunday. Um, there's also a yellow line across the street. Ignore it. It's just for Monday through Friday. So you can park right across the street from the, from the church building as, as well. Tomorrow night, also at the Taylors, there's going to be pop-up prayer happening. Um, we'd love to have you join us for that, and that happens at 7.30. And if you'd like more details about that, you can uh, either consult the weekly email or talk to me about it. And then I also want to make you aware that the counseling workshop is next Saturday morning uh, from 9 to 11, and uh, we'd love to have you join us for that. Sarah Heller is going to be leading us in a time for just understanding how we can better care for one another as a, as a congregation. Um, there is child care provided for that, so if you have kids and would like to join us, um, let me know and we can get you signed up and, and ready to go. I think that's all I've got for this morning. Thank you so much for worshiping with us. Go in grace this week.